Thanks for putting the effort into reading so enthusiastically too. It helps us um, hang with the story as it's being read. Let me pray. Father, open your word. Open the person of your son Jesus to our spirits, to our, our souls and spirits. Uh, help us to hear and believe and obey even as we come to your good news this morning. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you've ever had the experience like we just saw in that story of moving from uh, almost absolute despair to the heights of hope. We, we have this experience in our house from time to time. And what I, this is maybe a slightly disturbing story, so it comes with a bit of a M rating, perhaps. People will get home in the afternoon from a long day. They haven't eaten since lunchtime. They'll go to the fridge. They'll say, I'm so hungry. They'll open up the fridge and they'll say, there's no food here. There's just nothing but milk and vegetables and bread and butter. There's nothing in the fridge, they say. There's nothing in the fridge. I'm so hungry. I'm going to die. And then comes the word of hope. A word of hope. Dinner will be ready at 7 o'clock. I've only got to last till 7 o'clock. I've only got to last till 7 o'clock and they wait with hope and then when the dinner gets served, you don't know what it's like saying grace in our house. Oh, thank you, Lord, for this food. And they move from the depths of despair to the heights of hope. Well, maybe I exaggerate a little bit. (laughs) But you know the feeling. Actually, let me tell you another story where you move from the heights of from the depths of despair to the heights of hope. Because I think actually the depth of your despair is proportional to the height of your hope. little despair, I'm hungry. Oh, dinner at 7 o'clock, a little height of hope. In 1982, June, 24th of June, British Airways Flight 9, I watched air crash investigations, I love that show. British Airways Flight 9 took off from Kuala Lumpur to Perth. They got to cruising altitude. The radar said everything's clear. The captain decided it was time to go to the toilet. Always a bad thing on air crash investigations when the captain goes to the toilet. Never good. (laughs) There's the first officer and the flight engineer and suddenly they look out the window and there's all this electrical sort of shower screen around their 747. What's this before? I've never seen this before. The whole windscreen's full of all this brightness. And they're flying along. They say, we better go get the captain. Meanwhile, back in economy, it's starting to smell like smoke. And they're trying to stay cool. This, back in the days when people smoked in aircraft, they say, maybe it's just the cigarettes. Captain comes back from the toilet. What's going on? Meanwhile, the people back in economy sitting next to the wings are starting to see massive flames come out of the engines. It's like they're on fire. They're flying along. They're trying to work out what's going on. What's all these sparks? What's all this stuff? And then suddenly they lose an engine. What's, what's going on? No one has a clue. And then a minute later they lose another engine. Then two minutes later, they lose two engines at the same time. They are not flying, they are now gliding. They are now falling towards the Indian Ocean. The sparks all around, they've got poor radio communication, their instruments are failing. 
It's like a devil has come and possessed that 747 and it is falling out of the sky. They're desperately trying to restart the engines and they will not restart. The captain makes an announcement. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your captain speaking. We have a small problem. All four engines have stopped. We are doing our damnedest to get them going again. I trust you are not in too much distress. They've seen flames from the engine. They've been told they have no engines. The flight crew doesn't have a clue what's going on. They are falling out of the sky. Suddenly, the oxygen masks drop. That's never a good thing. Because there's just not enough, the engines aren't running, the air's not getting pumped in, it's now atmospheric air. It stinks of all this smoke. It's acrid. Everyone's going to die. They know it. We're heading for the Indian Ocean. And there is silence in the whole airport, aircraft. And up front, the flight crew are doing their damnedest to start engines which will not start again and again and again until they get... And the, to make it worse, the captain starts... This sparks are still everywhere. The captain starts trying to do things to... He's trying to get down to a low altitude because of the oxygen problem, so he's throwing the plane around. They're all getting tossed around like this. They're dying. How many minutes is it till we die? Until they get to about 4,000 metres... And one engine starts. There's exhilaration because you can fly with one engine. And then 10 minutes later, another engine starts. And then another engine starts and another engine starts. Now they lose one more engine before they get back to Jakarta. But you can imagine the exhilaration of hope when they hear those engines kick in. We might make it. We might survive. And when they land and they touch down, they had a whole destroyed windscreen. It's quite a good story. But when they finally land, almost blind at Jakarta, and stop that engine, they take all the first class champagne and they give it to the plebs and economy. Because <laughs> this is a good day. They went from the depths of despair. We're all going to die to the very heights of hope and then salvation. Those people formed a club which still meets even to this day because they shared something. They were all going to die and now they're alive. Now they just happened to fly into a volcanic ash cloud which were invisible to radars and it's a whole story and a big thing in flight, flight safety uh, and what they do these days. But yeah, they, the engines got blocked up by volcanic ash until they got cool enough and low enough for the ash to clear and they could restart the engines. That's what happened. In Lazarus' story, we see that huge contrast. In this series, Hope Out of Hopelessness, in Luke, John chapter 12. Now, Mary and Martha's brother, Lazarus, has died. He's been buried four days. Others have come and joined them in their mourning, which is kind of a professional pursuit in that culture and in those days. They're all trying to process their despair. And it feels hopeless. Lazarus is dead. Martha hears that Jesus has arrived four days late or more, five days late, and she rushes out to meet him. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus says to her, as Jeff read, I am the resurrection and the life. 
The one who believes in me will live even though they die. So whoever lives by whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Jesus offers hope, and and Martha says, "Yes, Lord, I believe." She says she goes to get her sister Mary. She went back and called her sister Mary. The teacher is here. She said secretly, "He's asking for you." When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to meet him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house mourning and comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the, to the tomb to mourn there. So here we have both sisters now, plus a crowd of mourners in tow, coming to Jesus well, at least Mary and Martha, looking for answers. And Mary cast herself down before Jesus. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, which is exactly what her sister Martha said when she met Jesus. If you'd been here. See, they've been talking. What have they been saying to each other for the last four days? Why wasn't Jesus here? Why didn't he come? If he'd been here, he wouldn't be dead. They've been four days of this. And so when they see Jesus, they just repeat what they've been talking about. They're struggling to process their despair. And let's face it, didn't Jesus love Lazarus? Weren't we friends? Hadn't we helped Jesus in practical ways many times? And isn't he able to do something. I mean, this is the guy who's healed the lame and the blind and provided bread in the wilderness. Doesn't Jesus care? After all that. And maybe you know that feeling, trying to process despair in your life. Doesn't God care? Where is he? He is God. He is able. So I believe. Isn't he supposed to love us? Why? Why me? Why now? And the crowd, they're all gathered around and they're saying, like what happens with us, you poor thing. The crowd cares. But God... God is absent. How do we process disappointment with God? Mary comes and she casts herself at Jesus' feet. She says, if you'd been here, it wouldn't have happened. She comes empty. She comes still with faith. She comes with expectancy and she comes even challenging. She doesn't understand why her brother died and why Jesus delayed. And we don't understand why God delays. We don't understand why God challenges. And we don't understand the tragedy in our life. We don't have perspective, which Jesus does have. The beautiful thing about Mary is she still comes in faith and hope 
And she casts herself before Jesus with challenge and Jesus is more than up for the challenge. There's no censure. What do you do when you're trying to process despair? Mary is a pretty good example to follow. Because the truth is, however you're feeling, Jesus does care. In fact, he understands the depths of our despair probably better than we do. You need to look at his response here. You need to see how he cares. See how he offers hope even out of hopelessness. Now Jesus' response here is amazing, but to set up Jesus' response, I want you to I want to go back and look at something of what he said about himself. Chapter 4, verse 13, he's talking to a Samaritan woman, an outcast by the well. He says, everyone who drinks this water in the well will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. You've got to drink my living water. He's in Jerusalem in chapter 5, meeting some opposition after healing a man. In verse 24 he says, Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live, says Jesus. He's talking about himself. He feeds 5,000 people in a remote place with bread and fish. After that, in chapter 6, verse 48, he says, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, but they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. Chapter 8, verse 12, again back in Jerusalem. Jesus spoke to the people. He said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Are you getting the theme? Jesus gives life, eternal life. He is the one who healed the lame man, who gave sight to the blind, and so much more. He is the wonder worker. Even after he heard that Lazarus was dead in chapter 11, verse 4, he says, This sickness will not end in death. No, it's for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. He just told Martha, his brother's dead, four days dead, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever lived, I'm going to get it wrong, the one who believes in me will live even though they die and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this, Martha? How does Jesus respond when Mary and Martha, Mary at his feet and all the crowd around mourning, going through their professional mourning, making a racket about Lazarus' death? How does Jesus respond? You might expect, what is this? Do you not believe? Do you not know who I am? 
And why I am here, why? To raise your brother from the dead, that is a mere bagatelle for me. I am the Lord of life. I am Jesus. Is that how he responds? Verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. That word, deeply moved in spirit, it's an unusual sort of a word. It's elsewhere in ancient Greek, a phrase you'd use for horses snorting, you know. It's used for anger. It's used for indignation. He's seeing this woman at his feet. He's seeing these people crying around him and yelling, screaming and yelling because this man's dead. And it's like, he's really cheesed off. He's wound up. He's not just, oh, it's, this is not her. This is, this is her. He says he's deeply troubled. I'm not happy. Jan? Mary? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 25, Christ must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. See, the reason Jesus is so wound up is that he is face to face with the enemy. The wages of sin is death. He is meeting his foe in the morning of Lazarus' friends and family. Now, if your foe, if you're standing before your foe who has been hurting you and hurting others, and they need to be overthrown. They need to be put down. Otherwise, they will continue to hurt. Should you be passionless? Should you say, oh, I won't get wound up about this? No, you get wound up. You should get wound up in righteous indignation and resolve this must Stop. This despair, this sorrow, this hopelessness. And Jesus has had enough. And he sets out to confront the enemy. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Never, never think that your Saviour and your God is unconcerned about your despair. Never think that. Never imagine God, your Creator, as some blank spiritual Star Wars force who is passionless. God cares. He feels our despair the effects of sin, 
the effects of this fallen world, death itself is dreadful and God is committed to its overthrow in justice because he cares, he feels, he loves and there is hope and there is comfort in that. God has compassion, he has empathy. He knows how you feel. When you are empty and threatened and despairing in the face of sin and death, when there is nothing left except grief, that is not the whole story, but that is a godly response to feel that way. Because Jesus felt that way in the face of death, in the face of a world overcome by sin. He weeps. He weeps because he truly understands the depths of our despair. You know what I was saying about the proportional, the depths of despair is proportional to the height of hope? Jesus understands the depths deeper than you do. We are slaves to sin. The wages of sin is death and it breaks him and it brings tears that flow down his face. And I wonder if we have even, even, even such a strong reaction when we come face to face with the enemy all too often in our normal lives. We just try and sweep it under the carpet. Let's get on with life as best we can. Those watching, they're struggling to process what's going on. The Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Like when he was sick, if you can open the eyes of the blind, just when the guy's feeling unwell, fix him up. That's easy. And now it's too late. Such a great man, not you know what, I think I would have been with the second crowd. Like, this, he's late. They called him and he's done all this and everyone thinks he's so glorious. Are you not so glorious, man? Are you crying now? I think I would have been with that crowd. Because it's an easy response. And you'll get this response. You say you believe in a God who loves you. Where's your God now? It's a sham. It's a fantasy. I can't believe in a God like that. But they don't understand. They don't understand that Jesus has come to overthrow. He has come for conquest. He has come to set things right. He he goes forth into the battle with righteous indignation. Verse 38. Jesus once more deeply moved. He's snorting. He's wrath. Jesus once again, deeply moved, comes to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone. But Lord said, Martha, the sister of the dead man, this this stone is bad, oh, it stinks, Lord. He's been dead four days. And Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And then Jesus looked up to heaven. 
He said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Come forth. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Don't you disbelieve him, Martha, because here comes the glory. Here comes the victory. Here comes the Lord in power, mighty to save. And at the end of all those statements of conflict, Lazarus is alive and he's seeing and he's breathing and his heart is pumping. And he says, take those grave clothes off. That is no way for a man to live wrapped in those grave clothes. Says Jesus, the light of the world, the bread of life, the living water, the great I am, the resurrection and the life, the conquering king, the Messiah, the Lord. Here is the victory. Death has been defeated. Came for the battle and he conquered. John 1 to 12, which we're doing this year. We're We're running out of time for the rest of it. John 1 to 12, chapters 1 to 12 is often called the book of the signs. It's really the first half of John's Gospel. Because in this part of John's Gospel we have Jesus' miracles, what he does, and then almost always teaching either the words of Jesus or the words of John related to the miracle that's just happened, revealing who Jesus is. It's the book of signs because each miracle is a sign showing us who Jesus is. The raising of Lazarus is the last and the greatest sign in John's Gospel. Jesus confronts the enemy and overcomes the fallen world order and brings a new day, even life from death. After this, if you read on, straight after this, his human enemies come for him. They come to chase him down and send him to his death on the cross. He faces death He dies. It looks like he loses. When actually he's finishing the work, finishing the sign that he began with Lazarus, winning a great victory. For in his body he is bearing the penalty of sin, the wages of sin is death for us. And then by the power of God he conquers death. He beats the grave. Like Lazarus, if we keep reading, Jesus will burst forth from the tomb and be raised to new life. And in his death and resurrection, we have our hope for death to sin and resurrection to eternal life. We cannot leave this story of Lazarus without comparing the sign we've just read with the reality we have in Jesus. See, the sign is Lazarus' resurrection. The reality is Jesus' resurrection. You know what? The reality 
is our future resurrection. Jesus was buried much the same way Lazarus was buried, wrapped in grave clothes, placed in a tomb, stained across the front. When Jesus rose, the stone had been rolled away. They had to roll Lazarus' stone away. When When Lazarus comes forth from the tomb, he is like a mummy coming forth from the pyramid. He's wrapped in grave clothes, his face across his nose. When Jesus is raised from the dead, the disciples turn up to the tomb and the grave clothes are neatly wrapped on one side and the face cloth on the other side. He is not bound by the grave clothes. Jesus says of Lazarus, unwrap him. He can't live like that, but Jesus is already raised perfect. Lazarus comes forth from this tomb still bound by this world order, by space and time. Lazarus comes forth to die again because he can't escape this fallen world. When Jesus is raised to a new life, he raises, in a sense, to a new world order. He's raised with a spiritual body that can somehow, if we read the accounts, overcome space and times as he materialises in rooms. Bodily the same, but different. One raised to temporal life, one raised to eternal life. Compare the sign. All the sign is doing is pointing to the reality, which is Jesus' resurrection, which if we believe in him will be our resurrection. Bodily, new world order, perfect. Those of us who believe in Jesus, like Mary and Martha, those who hear, believe and obey and entrust themselves to the Lord Jesus, who come like Mary and lay themselves at Jesus' feet, will be partakers of the resurrection of Jesus. The Apostle Paul puts it like this. I read the end bit of this passage, but let me read the whole. Let me read from verse 20 of chapter 15. Christ, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than most all people. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. He is the first fruits, the first of the harvest of those who have fallen asleep, those who have died. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ will all be made alive, but each in turn. Christ, Jesus, in his resurrection, the first fruits. Then when he comes, as we sang, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion and authority and power. For he must reign, the Lord Jesus, until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. That's why he's come to to win the victory and for us 
today, we need to know, you need to know that Jesus understands how bad it is. He understands better than we do the hopelessness of despair that we live with. And as he comes to the end of his earthly ministry, he comes here face to face with the last enemy. And it pees him off. It gets under his skin. He feels it. And he is determined this will not be. Bring it on. Bring it on. For I am the resurrection and the life. I am the Saviour. I am the Lord. Bring it on. I will squash the enemy. I will defeat death. Death. I will overthrow and renew this fallen world order. I will be the resurrection and the life. And the fight doesn't stop with Lazarus the sign. He goes to the cross and the tomb. And he is raised to glory and today he lives and reigns on high at the right hand of God the Father. And he offers us hope out of hopelessness. You've got to understand the depths of your despair to really appreciate the heights and the joys of hope. We should be people of joy and hope. Those kids we looked at, the hope in their eyes, how much more with Jesus? A future. Forgiveness. <laughs> Escape from slavery. Freedom for eternity. We, like Martha, need to confess. I believe that you are the Messiah, Jesus. You are the Son of God who came into the world to save us from our sins. I believe in you. I believe you are the resurrection and the life. Amen.